Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash Agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. Joining me tonight, a podcast favorite, a a listener favorite, Mr. Don Gray. Don, how are you doing? And my booking agent. So Don has become my booking agent, and he's also cost me a fortune at Amazon.com because he keeps recommending books, but I love it. Don, how are you doing? Doing wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. Hey, great to see you again. Glad you joined us. Also joining us, manifesto signer, author, coder, all-around great guy, Andy Hunt. Andy, how are you, sir? I am well, thank you. And apparently a, a very talented musician, given all the 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 equipment we see behind you. So, <laughs> Well, avid gear collector, I think, might, might be better. But <laughs> <laughs> Very good, very good. Also joining us, former coder, current author, and methodology creator, Jared Richardson. Jared, how are you? Doing great, thank you. So we've brought this group together largely to help Don get some questions answered. This started as a discussion <laughs> through email and Twitter, and it bled into a few different forums. But really, what's been going on lately is Andy and Jared have come up with the GROWS method. And so I'm going to let them kick off what this is about. It's also an opportunity to get some questions answered. They're onto something interesting here with, with adopting Agile and really inspecting, I think, systems of work. And I really, instead of me butchering it, I'd love for you know, Andy or Jared to, to kick it off with what it is. And then I know Don and I have a number of questions about this really fascinating methodology. The, the TLDR version, I guess, is that, you know, we've, we've been running around, you know, uh, uh, I was with the 17 guys who wrote the Agile Manifesto back in 2001. A lot of that, of course, was built on prior art. You know, the Scrum guys have been doing their thing for, for some time before that, and XP was coming together. So we've been doing this a long time now, right? It's, it's 2016, you know, just post-manifesto has been 15 years. And it occurred to me as I was talking to, to folks out in the wild there that we still really have a long way to go. If you look at any of the, the sort of vendor surveys and questionnaires and things that go out there, I was starting to get this real sinking feeling that most people, when you say, are, are you agile? They say, oh, yes, we're doing Agile, and it turns out that they say they're doing Scrum, and they do half of it, and they're doing that poorly. So they're, they're really not there. And it became increasingly frustrating to realize that people were celebrating the the practices, you know, almost reverentially focusing on, oh, we've, we, I'm going to be the best person at 
you know, uh, backlog grooming or whatever they call it now. Or I'm going to be, you know, we're, we're really going to focus on perfecting the stand-up meeting and all the ceremony and completely losing track of what it meant to actually be agile and not do agile. So Jared and I started talking about this. A couple things uh, kind of came up and occurred to us of how how maybe we've gone wrong over the years. You know, it'd be great to tell people, forget Practices entirely. Practices are meaningless. You know, it, it has nothing to do with it. It's all about the principles. But the problem, of course, is you can't just give principles to a beginner. They don't have enough experience to know what to do with that yet. So you've got to have practices in there, you know, somehow. But you've got to evolve them so that they appreciate why they're doing these things and be able to apply the principles when the going gets tough and they get beyond the beginner stage. And none of the existing methods really address this kind of progression. So, you know, you might say, okay, well, we can do this for adoption, but it goes beyond just adoption. It's, you've got to start with adoption and actually look at growth kind of all the way through. And that's sort of where we started from. So question, when you say method, how, how do you use that word? What does it mean to you when you say method? I use it in the loosest possible sense. <laughs> in the least formal, most generic, um, you know, we call this a method because it's a convenient shorthand. Uh, we could debate whether it's a method, a framework, or just a collection of agile ideas. So, no, I, I don't use the word with, with any technical precision whatsoever. No, that, that's good. I, it's an observation that I think a lot of us have had where the methodology became the goal, where it's, you know, we've checked the box on these scrum ceremonies, we, we have a, a well-groomed backlog, and it seems like we've forgot the idea that we're trying to continually improve on delivering software. Exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, I, I make fun of even the, the term backlog grooming because it's always just, I get this mental image of, of monkeys picking nits off each other's backs. It's just, I just get a real bad... I hear they, they moved away from that term now anyway, right, but so let's, let's call it it's refinement. A good thing. I think they now call it refinement, but the, That's I, fine. the, being, the <laughs> idea being that, well, we're going we're gonna to manage the process as opposed to deliver uh, valuable software frequently, and it, it just seems that we've lost the target. And so with the GROWS method, you know, where do we begin? How do, you, how do you get started when you want? To, let's say that we're at a company where we want to evaluate agility or we want to get some insights into what people are doing and try to make some recommendations on, on how they can improve their systems of work, where do you start? Well, that's a, a couple, couple questions nested there. Let me, let me see if I can unpack that. The, the big things that we try to emphasize is, first of all, really hammering on the idea of continuous development, not episodic. So continuous build, continuous integration, continuous testing, where continuous actually means it's going on all the time. Um, Jared's had folks he's talked to where you know their continuous build runs every third Friday. That's one of the existing problems we sort of run into is even, even with a scrum practice like the daily stand-up, people will say, oh yes, we run those on Thursdays. It's like, it's right in the name, folks. You're already doing it wrong. But, but regardless of that, the big thing we try to push is the continuous life, if, if you will, that everything is continuous, and the idea that we don't have all the answers. This is not the ultimate methodology in that it is not prescriptive in that you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the other thing. The idea is you have to experiment. 
you have to grow code, you have to grow skills, and you have to find out what works, both in the technical arena and what works with process for you. Now, the risk of that, of course, is you don't want a bunch of beginners going around saying, oh, well, we're experimenting. We're not going to do continuous builds. We're not going to do uh, you know, user involvement, this kind of stuff. So we mediate that, we moderate that with using this idea of a skill model, a skill stages that you go through. So that when you're a beginner to these ideas, to this process, you know, going into that, that company you mentioned, starting from scratch, you start with the very earliest beginner level. You know, this is the sippy cup of, of methods, right? It's designed for beginners. It's designed for safety. You know, it's designed to actually deliver the, the, the simplified product, um, you know, kind of thing. And that has very much a focus on the mechanical aspects of delivery, continuous build, continuous integration. Once you get that firm foundation in place, and some stat I saw was something around 50-60% of, quote, agile teams don't have continuous integration or builds or test in place. And if you don't have that, I don't see how you can be agile. I mean, you, you've lost the game right out of the gate. So we start with that. That's, that's sort of the bare minimum. You've got to have that foundation in place. And because you're beginners, we're telling you exactly what to do. We give you checklists, do this, do that. But then moving along past that, we start introducing other practices to get executives involved, tell them how to interact with the team, get users involved, and you know move up through the skill hierarchy to get everything going that you eventually need. So you so essentially, you, you have flipped the model then, because I know that... Um, we take you look at Scrum, Kanban, uh, Less, Dad, Safe. Uh, they leave the XP practices, which I think what you guys are emphasizing up front out. And I think they, they go ahead. They, yeah, yeah. They they. So the problem is, and people because one of the things people keep asking us is, well, how is this different from Scrum? How is this different from XP? How is this different from Lean? Um, they're different things. What Grows tries to do is provide a framework for you to use whatever sets of practices might work for you. Now, XP prescribes chiefly technical practices for the team. Doesn't really speak to how to interface with executives. Wants you to interface with users. Doesn't give you tremendous amount of guidance on how to do that. Scrum is a great lightweight project management framework. Does not address the technical issues at all. They assume, of course, you have them. You'd be fool not to, right? It's it's just an assumption. And even XP, as far as it goes, it doesn't have a practice saying you must use version control because you'd be a fool not to. There's so there's a level of assumption. XP assumes you've got this this low level. Um, set of skills and set of technologies. Scrum assumes you've got something like XP underneath it to, to shore up the technical areas. And, of course, what happens out in the world is those are faulty assumptions. Well, I would like to point out the flaw in your basic assumptions. Shoot. Un unfortunately, it, it reinforces everything I see. So um, I'm at a loss here. Ryan, you're up. <laughs> Okay, Don. So you, you're bringing craftsmanship explicitly back into the framework. How are people responding to that? And, and the reason, the, the motivation behind the question is, you know, it's my own opinion that, that Scrum left those practices out because you can't teach those in a two-day course. 
So you can, <laughs> you can, well, it's kind of true, right? If you, if you look at, at the model that Scrum Alliance and Scrum.org have picked up, it's we're going to sell two-day classes. Uh, they do a five-day developer course, but even that's not enough to become craftsmen. You know, I, I think people say six months to really internalize these practices and to get, get some of those things smoothed out. How are people responding to that upfront investment when you say, well, look, you're going to have to, to get good at this before you're allowed to do <clears throat> that other stuff? So... Um Again, there's a, there's a couple thoughts there. Um, yes, it takes time. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's it's really a thing about our, our modern society. We want the soundbite answer. We want the simple, easy answer that we can just go do. And, of course, it's not that easy. It takes some time. That's why we wanted to emphasize this path of skill development for individuals, for the team, for the organization, because it's a, it's a journey. You know, one of the big reasons a lot of agile adoption fail is because they try to do too much all at once. You know, they just slam and it's like, okay, we're doing everything different right now, bang. Very disorienting, very hard to, to get your bearings. It it takes time and it, it is a progression. So that's part of it. Um, the other part is the existing methods don't really have enough support for the other parts of the organization we have to interface with. You know, it's still claimed that one of the biggest reasons most projects fail of, of any stripe, whether they're plan-based, uh, you know, like, like, a, like an old-fashioned waterfall kind of thing or, or agile or half-agile or whatever it might be, one of the biggest reasons they fail is lack of executive involvement. Uh, and this is something Jared's seen a lot of and, and done a lot of work with. So if we can get... You know, if we can actually deliver practices to executives and say, okay, you know, we're not just going to hang you out on a limb here. This is what you should expect to get. This is what you should see from your teams. Here's how you interface with them. Here's how, here's how you get what you need. And now we've got executive buy-in. And the executives we've talked to so far have been really um, warm and receptive to this because they're seeing their personal benefit. This is what they can get out of this. I like how you've talked about what the executives can expect and get out of this. But once you start doing different activities at the development level and create different expectations, if since organizations are fractal, if you create change at the developer level and don't ripple that change up to the executive level, eventually... You're going to hit a barrier, and things are going to stop, and it's going to ripple back down, and we'll have yet another failed change. So how does Grows support and advise executives how their roles shift? Now, by executives, I'm talking mainly middle managers, possibly to the lower level. I mean, if it gets to the C-level, that's great, but what's in it? for those people to so that they understand how they need to change to support what's happening at the production level. There are so many places I wanted to jump in. So let me let me wind back just a little bit. So the underlying growth model Andy's been talking about and the learning model, we're we're based on the Dreyfus model of skills acquisition, right? So beginners need steps. You get up to you know halfway. You're great at recipes. You can follow steps, and at the top, 
you know, you're self-actualized, then you can do principles, intuition. But it's it's an explicit path that a lot of other methodologies just say, oh, by the way, inspect and adapt. You know how to do that. And we're from day one saying, here are the steps for you, the beginner. And as you move forward, this is the explicit growth path. And we, we guide you in that direction. Now, when we get to executives, almost every client I come into You talk to the executives and they say, I have no insight as to what they're doing. I do not understand the development process. I don't know how much progress they're making and they can't deliver on time. So what that turns out to be most of the time is that the development vision for the the teams is not the technical vision. And they've done a very poor job of communicating that. They've tried to use mission statements. And you go in and say mission statements are a poor way to communicate to technical teams, and and the executive becomes insulted, right? I'm an executive. I know what I'm doing. You say, well, you know, you point out Dilbert and mission statements, and they sort of wake up to it. And we talk about breaking down the work, decomposing it in a very clean way from those those initiatives that will take a couple years down to your epics, your features, your stories, so that we actually get the team working on what they want them working on as opposed to what the development team thinks the executives want them to work on. We we talk about the three R's, right? We want the teams working on the right rhythm, which is the scrum-type cadence. We want the, the normal iteration of work. Number two is the right vision, which is where we have to engage the executives, just like you said, Don, I, I call them grass fires. You have an, a, a, um, an agile adoption and you start ground up, which is what I used to do. I was a developer once upon a time. And you work with all these teams and everybody loves agile and they get all happy. And then the economy contracts, you miss a deadline, somebody, the company stumbles and the executives whiplash you back. And you have what Don just called another failed agile adoption. We have to start at the beginning so right vision is getting the executives actually communicating effectively with the teams. And once we've communicated the right technical vision, let's show them how to measure that. And I, I love the burn up, not the burn down because it hides things like scope creep. But the burn up says we're shipping, I don't know, 17 features in the next release. Three of them work. So we're at 5% of the features and we have burned 80% of the budget. Do you think we'll be on time? The answer is no, right? Just like we come in for the developers and say, here are a set of steps. We also come in with the executives and say, here are a set of steps. We're going to start with sharing the vision effectively, and we're going to start with measuring progress effectively. Point I want to I want to jump in there that that's real important because um, you mentioned you know going in and, and telling the executives uh, you know what they're doing is wrong or they don't know what they're doing and you know obviously uh, um, annoying them or or stepping on toes with that sort of thing. One of the important side effects, I suppose, of the of the Dreyfus model of skills acquisition is the fact that it is a per skill model. So you know you may be expert at at management, at skydiving, at cooking, at whatever, and a beginner at making souffles, at skiing, at whatnot. So one of the things is when you're going in to start a new adoption with something like Grows, everyone's a novice because by definition, a novice has no experience with this particular thing. So it's not that anyone's stupid or or ignorant or anything else. It's just Everyone's inexperienced. So that's easier to say, yes, of course, you're a novice at this. You don't have experience with it. And as a novice, here's what we've got set up to, you know, to make this work. 
most of the executives we talk to are grateful for the guidance and help. And it's a question of trying to manage something nebulous. And we come in and give them concrete steps and they say, thank you. It's not been a lot of pushback. Yeah. I I like the stages and and the actual skills within it's in my, you know, as I distill this and I I internalize it into my own words, it looks like you've really embraced incrementalism. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, almost one step beyond that, because one of the other things that, that we sort of have, have found out there in the wild, you know, as done, as done, not as preached, is the fact that you can tell people to be incremental and iterative uh, all day long and, until your skin falls off, and they still don't do it. They will still do some big ceremony, some big event, some big episode, and not really be as incremental, you know, there's a a running joke about, you know, having a a 30-day sprint that's really just a series of small waterfalls because they're they're just not getting the whole incremental thing. What we've found is that if you use the tracer bullet analogy to describe thin vertical slices of functionality that go end-to-end through the proposed system and being able to refactor and change that as you go along and as the system grows, just by that Change in terminology and change in visualization, all of a sudden, more folks are getting it. They're like, oh, I understand. Right? Jared's had this happen. He's gone in. These people have had scrum training. They've had all kinds of consultants come and whatnot, and they say, I don't get incremental. And he'll explain tracer bullets to them. They're like, oh, I understand that. I can, I can do a tracer bullet. And what's interesting, too, is it seems like you've aligned the values across stages, across roles. What I mean by that is, you know, stage one safety and hygiene for a team is version control, continuous integration, time box, interruption, and interruption protocols. And so what I see is basically establishing safety and focus. And when I look down at the method for executives, your stage one in safety and hygiene is vision and process management, which again is safety and focus. Absolutely. It it seems, I, I really like on multiple levels that it's an incremental progression through agile practices and agile mindset, but it's also instilling the same values across roles. So you've cross-cut the roles, you, you've instilled the same value sets at the same times, and it seems like this is enabling very rich conversations between the various roles during each stage. Are you seeing that, or am I just making this up? Oh, no, no, that's, I mean, that was absolutely the plan, and, and we're certainly seeing some of that, but, but you have to remember, this is still really embryonic. This is this is really early days. Um, you know, I think the day I put the website up, I had people email me and say, you know, how many people have adopted Grows yet? And it's like, dude, I literally just put the website up. You know, this is this is still very early. Um, so we have we have folks doing this. We're getting a lot of good uh, early reports, a lot of good uh, encouraging words. We've had a lot of people, which I'm very very pleased to hear, saying we've been doing something like this, but it didn't have a name. And now we've got a name for it. In fact, one of the motivations that that really, really frosted my cookies and and made me actually start doing this was I had people who were saying, you know, we want to actually be agile and, and experiment with different things and try stuff and inspect and adapt. And our company won't let us because that's not Scrum. That's not XP. That's not Lean. That's not Kanban. It's not in the book. Therefore, we can't do it. It's not 
canonical agile. And as soon as they start talking about having to adhere to canonical agile, you know, after I threw up a little bit, it's like, okay, this is, this is a problem. So if nothing else, if we fail on every other front, at a minimum, I'd like to be able to say, okay, Grows is at least a brand and a label that you can say, hey, we're doing Grows, and Grows says we can do this. We can inspect and adapt. We can be flexible. We can actually be agile. So that's really one of our, our biggest goals. Don, Don just sent me a, a question here saying, do I, do I get to offer certification? No, we, we don't. We're not going to have certification programs. I, I don't think that's, that's the way to go. Um, if you want to certify that someone's gone to a course and sat in a seat, that's wonderful, but that's not where we're at. Um, when we give our workshops that, that we've just started doing, at the end of the workshop, you get this handsome framed, framed certificate that says you have a license to experiment. And your executives, your boss signs it, and we sign it. And it has the attendee's name on it. So what you come away with is permission to inspect and adapt. And I think that's far more valuable. And again, it gets the conversation started much more importantly than uh, a certificate would. What do you guys have in place for those times when inspect and adapt gets scary? I think we've all seen stories. You know, For me, you know, my, my base is Scrum. I love the framework. I think it's wonderful for getting people into the agile world. Uh, but inevitably, when you adopt a problem-finding framework like Scrum, you, you, you pull back the carpet, you, you lift up the rug, you look underneath, and there's some really bad stuff there. The, the plan, and I'll, I'll let Jared jump in here in a second, the, the plan is that by going up through the skill model and starting with the, I don't want to say the easy stuff, but starting with the very mechanical stuff, you know, it's it's kind of like when, when you're teaching kids physics and you give them the canned experiment and they're freezing, they're making ice cubes and melting it into ice, right? You know what's going to happen. You know how it's going to go. So we start them off running, quote, experiments, but they're fairly well constrained. You know what's going to go wrong. You know how to fix it. So we get them used to this environment, or at least the plan is, get them used to this environment of you know, doing experiments, getting feedback, and reacting to it in a constrained and controlled manner. And having done that for a couple of skill stages as things increase, you get used to that idea. So by the time you get up to the big, hairy problems, you're at least used to that kind of a framework. It's like, oh, okay, we've uncovered something. Here's how we address it. And the other thing we do, I mean, right, beginners need steps. We give you steps on how to, guidelines for your experimentation, right? If you look at the, the core concepts, we talk about only changing one thing at a time, small bites always. The, the workshop, we, we have a bit about experimentation and how to squeeze it down, what your experiment should look like. But as Andy said, a lot of this stuff, you're going to, we've seen it before, right? There's nothing new under the sun, whether you name it so you can talk about it or not. At the end of every practice, we have how to fail spectacularly. If you're, if you're really, you know, you need a laugh, go to the Grows website, go look at the practices, and, and flip down to the how to fail spectacularly. Every one of those are real, there, there's no made-up examples in there. Every one of those, we can, we can I, I won't cite the client, but we can take those back to somebody we've encountered. Um, you know, we have the daily meetings on Friday, our daily stand-ups on Friday. That's an actual client. You know, we have CI it, that runs at midnight. 
but it's CI. The, we uh, what did we originally call it, Andy? The um, Oh yeah, we we had it. So so each practice that we list on the website has like you know eight or nine sections that goes goes through these things. And this last one we initially called um, spectacularly stupid ideas that yeah. we had taken from from real life. Um, you know, you know, folks saying, "I really like all the benefits of of test driven development, but we don't want to write tests." You know, tell us what to do. You know these kinds of statements. It's like, wow, okay, this is this is just hard. Or you know, yeah, version control where um, you know you write your own version control system instead of using something else. You know, whatever. So we call this spectacularly stupid ideas. And one of the early uh, beta testers readers went through and said, "Guys, love your work, love what you've done with the practices here, but I can't." I, I can't work with this because what you've listed under spectacularly stupid ideas is actually our company's business plan. This is what we're doing, and I cannot show this to my management with it so labeled. So in deference to this poor fellow, we renamed it to How to Fail Spectacularly, and I wished him all the best. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, we've talked about experimentation quite a bit. I think there's often confusion about uh, what makes a good Agile experiment, how to frame them correctly, how to, I think as you said, squeeze them down so that they are perhaps not as risky or, or scary to the organization. Can you give some some insights, you know, perhaps from your workshop or, or what you guys have been writing and teaching others about forming experiments in an Agile context and some of the the better practices that you've seen? I mean, what it comes down to really is trying to teach people how to look for and evaluate feedback. That, that, that's really kind of the essence of it. So, you know, we have this sort of pattern language for the practices um, uh, that we lay out. And for an adoption experiment for a practice, we'll say, okay, here's the setup. Here's the trial that you do. Here's how to evaluate the feedback. Uh, the idea being that by the time you get to the higher levels, you'll be making your own experiments and looking for your own feedback. But clearly, when you start off, the the hard thing in inspect and adapt, as Agile says, is well, how do you how do you seek and and properly evaluate feedback? How do you know what to look for? You know, you don't want to get into the kind of of crazy. Uh, metrics gathering nonsense that you know things like like I don't know, like PSP does or you know CMM offshoots where you're just measuring Nat's eyebrows. Yeah, you know, we don't want to go down that road. You have to be very judicious in the feedback that you solicit. You know what, what's that? What's the old consultant saying? You know, you get what you measure. So we try to start off with very very concrete suggestions at the early stages to get people pointed in the right direction. So this is really calling back to a, a, a strong metrics program from the outset. So when you're working with executives and teams, what are the initial metrics? I know we mentioned the, the burn up and burn down charts, but what are the metrics that you're most interested in to help baseline an organization before they really start down the, these multiple stages? Well, here's a question for you. What, what is it we ship? Points? We ship points. <laughs> We definitely we don't know. we don't ship any of that crap. We ship working software. So let's decompose the work appropriately so that we have features and stories, right? Stories taking w within a sprint multiple days, features taking multiple sprints but fitting within maybe a quarter. And let's measure the working software. Let's say okay, for this release we want 15 features in there. 
How many of those features were was your team able to get working over the last uh, three sprints? Zero? I think that's an important point. I mean, you're really calling back to throughput as opposed to story points or anything like that. And it, uh, I, I totally agree. Through, throughput gives you so many different measurements that are actually meaningful. So it's, it's great to hear that that's a, a valued metric in, in your method. There's a hazard. And there are always hazards. Because when we start to look at throughput and delivering value, we often look at people who are doing the work instead of the system that we create in which they work. And so as an executive, I have the ability to create a system. I bring developers into the system and, hey, go forth and deliver. But if the system does not support the delivery and creation of software, creation and delivery of software, of value. Let's go with value. That's really what we want. Then we tend to look at, oh, wait, yo, yo, yo is not doing well. And we fail to acknowledge what the wise guy said. Just my wise guy is Deming. Who is yours? One of the things you're hitting there in between the cracks is one of the things that we, we push very strongly is that the, the speed of, the te- of any team is a constant. So as an executive, I've put together this team, this team, and this other team, and they are proceeding along. They've done one or two, three sprints, uh, time boxes, whatever we want, we want to call them, and this is the rate at which they are working. So the important thing that we try to, to advocate right off the back, bat is that is their rate, and in the short to medium term, it's a constant. You cannot make them go faster. I mean, you can over time. If you're willing to measure in years and, and have training and whatnot, you can increase that perhaps. But for here and for now, that's a constant. So with that constraint that, okay, you've got these teams, small, stable teams. You're not whipping people around because we know that's more effective and more efficient. With the team set up the way we recommend, their speed is a constant. Now, with that and measuring their actual output, now you've got some hard decisions to make. In the same vein that Don was talking as well, we also very much encourage you to not bonus the individuals. I want everyone on that team incented to co- to coexist and to help the people beside them instead of incenting Don to, you know, well, we're going to we're going to pay for the podcast based on the number of words spoken. At this point, I'm no longer incented to let Don say anything. I'm going to talk nonstop through the whole because I want to, right? But if if we reward and even the group, worse, this is this is the quietest I have been in any of the podcasts. <laughs> that's a that's a true story right there. <laughs> and, and also just 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 to take because I don't I have an inherent rash to the word metric. Um, not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just again, it's one of these things that can be so easily misunderstood and misused. It, it you know tends to make my hairs raise a little bit. So we f- evaluate feedback. Sometimes that might be a numeric quantity. It might be a metric. Sometimes it's not. It's just a Boolean capability. So, for instance, at the very beginning, you know, talking about something simple and basic like version control, right? The feedback is, is your, you know, do you use version control? Everyone says yes. Great. But then you start asking more particular questions. You know, can you check out and build the entire product and deploy it? Well, well, no, we're, we're, we don't have the 
the manual. We don't have the deployment scripts. The the chef, the Ansible stuff is over here somewhere else. It starts breaking down a bit. So the feedback that you evaluate to see, are you doing version control correctly, is very simple. Can you check the whole bloody thing out and build it? There are activities, I suppose, if you want, or events that you can evaluate for feedback and there are some things that we measure, uh, uh, you know, burn up charts and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. So what I like, Andy, is that, you know, both you and Jared, you're making regular callbacks to delivering software. And I find... You think? Isn't that a novel idea? It yeah. is, well, if you One look would at hope it, that's the point of the activity. Yeah. <laughs> but if you look at the marketplace, you know, and I, you know, I, I always think back to something like Safe, where it's... Yeah, it's not it's not necessarily explicit that that's the goal. So that's the problem though, right? An executive comes in and there's a problem with their software division. And they say, "How do I solve it? I don't want to understand that I want to write a check." And a consultant comes in and there's some good ones, but I've met a few slimy ones who say, "Ooh, just write this check. We'll take this many thousands of dollars. We'll train your division Monday through Thursday and on Monday you're now agile. Go do safe. It's an event." Yeah, and, and what do they say from then on? I don't know. What should we do in that situation? What does it say on the safe website? They've given them permission to not think, to not worry about the software, to not worry about the output, which is not what the people who wrote that wanted them to do, but it becomes a Bible to them, right? It's that those level three recipe folks on the Dreyfus model. They're halfway up the chain. They know how to follow directions, and they cling to those directions like a drowning man. Scrum. As, as several of us have said, it's an excellent easy, project easy. management methodology, right? But the problem is when people cling to the practices and they, they're still doing Scrum, you know, three, four, five years later, the same way they learned it in the class. Right. And they're only concerned with replicating what they were taught, not inspecting and adapting, which is what they were told to do. I, I like that emphasis. I, and I think it's important that we always think about, you know, working software. And, that, and that's where we should be. Some of the things that I think about is as we're taking incremental steps through different roles, we're leveling people up uh, through these stages. Um, it seems like you really need an excellent agile coach present to guide this. Is that a fair statement that this is definitely one of the rec prerequisites of, of being able to do the growth method? No. Well, the, well so here's, here's the problem. It's great if you can get one. And that's true whether you're doing Lean, whether you're doing XP, whether you're doing Scrum. If you have someone with the voice of experience on your side helping you, you know, and you can mine that experience, that's a great thing. Um, I wish everyone had that opportunity. The sad fact is there's just not that much experience to go around. Um, it's harder to find a great coach maybe, you know, than it should be. They're out there, you know, don't get me wrong, but there's an awful lot of folks where that, that's really just not a, a viable option for them. Um, they just, they just don't have that. So what we are hoping to try to skate over that a bit, you know, again, is going from the very uh, firm rules-based approach for the novices to help them gain some level of experience and expertise in a safe manner and build that up enough so that by the time they get farther down the line, they've got at least some 
relevant um, expertise, some relevant practices that have been ingrained, moving them toward the principles to to try to um, get around that issue of not necessarily having a coach. Um, still, I would love it if everybody had a great coach. That'd be wonderful. So Andy, Jared, you guys have put together a, a great method that is focused on software that's trying to make people self-sufficient and without a certification path. This is a horrible business model, but it's a <laughs> but it is an absolutely wonderful, uh, I think, means to to teach people agile and, and to level them up incrementally and to make sure that craftsmanship is baked in. And so, I really appreciate you guys taking the time tonight to give people just a taste of what uh, the Grows Method could be. And again, the, I believe the website is growsmethod.com for those who really want to dig in and, and learn more. And I think you have links to the stages, the roles, the practices, some workshops, some articles. It's a very comprehensive site that I'm going to spend a lot more time <laughs> going through. And uh, I just I think you guys have done a phenomenal job of just laying everything out. Again, your business model is awful, but you're... you're, you're <laughs> well, your, your Let me tell you about that for just for, for just a second, because that's one of the other one of the questions is okay, wh what's the catch? You know, you know what what is our business model? Where do we get our coin out of this? And our intent is that this is basically free for you to use. Where we want to make our money, if you're teaching this to someone else. We will support you. We will give you a nice workbook. We've got a some 250, 300-page workbook that we use in, in our workshops. And if you want to teach grows to someone, we will take a cut of that. We will provide you with workbooks. We'll provide you with material. You know, we want to get this information out there. Um, in fact, uh, sometime either later this week or start of next, we've had a number of folks say, you know, see, see either me or Jared give a, a presentation at a conference, and they want to give a grows presentation to their local user group internally at their corporation, that sort of thing. So we've got a special slide deck um, that's just about uh, up that you can just download and it's got presenter notes and everything and you can give a grows presentation to your people and get them interested um, and started on it. And I think, you know, this kind of thing, letting people go out and do this themselves and get it out there and get these ideas rolling, to me is really the most important part because, you know, it says right in the Agile Manifesto, one of the principles says, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective and tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. That's not talking about refactoring code. That's talking about refactoring your method. And what has changed in Scrum or XP in the last 15 years, 10 years? The how many new practices? Yeah, yeah. How many new practices have, have we gotten? How many, you know, how many variations on the theme do we have? I mean, a little bit here and there. But you know, if you think about the kind of software we're building today versus what we were you know, carpet bombing CDs 15 years ago, it's a very different world. And have we changed our approaches radically because of that? No. Should we have? Maybe. So if nothing else, I want people out there experimenting, trying different things, and letting us know what they've found. At the heart of Agile is experimentation. And to make that explicit, I think you're going to help a lot of people. So I, I really appreciate you guys coming on, sharing the Grows Method with the Agile for Humans listeners uh, I think they're going to get a lot out of it if they do take uh, the opportunity to dig through it. So before we get into um, some of the, the plugs and promotions, Andy, since I do have you and you are one of the signers of the manifesto, whenever I get the opportunity to meet one of you guys, I always ask, and it, 
and just so you know, I've asked multiple, uh, a number of you guys, and the answer is always different. So I'm wondering if what you would uh, have to say about this, but what was the wackiest moment as you guys were together, putting together that great manifesto? The wackiest moment. Ha, huh, that's an interesting question. I don't usually get asked that way. It's usually, you know, what was the most profound or, uh, uh, you know, what was, what was the big, the big reveal or, or the, this or that. Um, I mean, it was, it was a really interesting time. You know, we, here we had 17 people with wildly different backgrounds, different, different approaches, even though we, you know, we'd all were kind of coalescing and agreeing on this, we didn't even know what to call it when we got there. I, I've got a, a screen capture of the uh, hotel's um, uh, you know, video conference system that had called it the Lightweight Methods Conference because we had to call it something to book it. And you know, when Bob Martin booked it, I guess that, that's, what he, that's what he put in. Um, so we didn't even know what to call it at first. And just to, to sit and watch you know, these 17 very different people try to hammer out what do we believe about this? What do we think is important? What, what do we even concur on? And there was great debate even on um, uh, something like, like the length of a time box iteration. And if you go through and read the manifesto, it, all of a sudden it reads in this real committee speak because that was, that was kind of you know, the best we could hammer out. You know, these folks wanted it really long. These folks wanted it really short. You know, Dave and I were trying to be pragmatic, dare I say. So it was, um, you know, that was all really interesting. Probably when everyone wanted to head off to the hot tub, I guess, would be that, wow. <laughs> and I totally blame Alistair for that. But <laughs> You know, he actually gets blamed for a number of the uh, wacky moments, so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Bless his heart. Couldn't have done it without him. Um, well, yeah, no, it, it was a very, I mean, you know, despite, despite what people may have said, there, there, there were no arrests, and it was, it was a very, uh, well, there are no indictments, certainly. Um, <laughs> It was a very, very, uh, you know, professional get together. I, I, I was really impressed, you know, especially in this day of internet comment trolls and all the, the vitriol that gets spewed at, at people who aren't on your side and your team. This was a remarkable group of very passionate, very committed, professional people having a very intense, very interesting discussion. And, you know, in hindsight, wow, what, what, what a cool thing and how unfortunate that that's maybe less common these days than it should be. So, guys, this is the end of our time box. And being the, the good agilist that we are, we, we need to respect that. So this is the part of the show, as Don alluded to, that you get to, to plug anything you like, anything that you want to get in front of the listeners or something else that you think they should know about. And so I'm going to start with uh, my wonderful booking agent. Don Gray. Uh, just want to make sure I say thank you for setting this up, Don. I really appreciate it. This has been refreshing. So I really love hearing about methods that are actually about delivering software and about experimentation. So thank you for bringing this together. And, and ha what do you have uh, to put in front of the listeners tonight, Don? Coaching Beyond the Team, where we talk about a lot of the things we've discussed tonight. When you look at Agile or changing your basic software development, fractal organizations, you're dealing with organizational change, organizational development. Coaching is a certain amount of extending what you already have. It also involves dealing with and working with those outside the environment in which you're working and coaching. 
And that's sort of the foundation for Coaching Beyond the Team. Esther and I have been doing this workshop for, I guess, four years now. Our next workshop is in Costa Mesa, California, September 13th and 14th, maybe 14th and 15th. Find out more at coachingbeyondtheteam.com. Now, uh, for those who are listening to this podcast, there will be a code called Agile for Humans. The friends and family early bird discount has expired, and that will get you the friend and family discount for the Coaching Beyond the Team workshop in Costa Mesa in September. Well, Don, we really appreciate that, and hopefully some of the listeners can get out there and uh, join you in California. It should be nice that time of year. So it's also in conjunction with uh, an Agile conference, isn't it? Uh, it's the two days before Agile Open Southern California. There you go. So that's a great, uh, great and conference. Esther, and Esther and I are both going to the conference the next two days after the workshop. Excellent. So that's a great opportunity to get a lot of time with Don and Esther. And, and I hope that uh, many of our listeners take advantage of that. So Don, thank you very much for that. And please be sure to thank Esther as well. Jared, how can people get a hold of you? What, uh, what do you have to share with, with the audience? Uh, what else should we know about? The, the best shameless plug I'm going to throw back out is for the uh, the Gross Method two-day workshop. So it's, it's a general purpose workshop. We've done it at a few conferences. We've had a few open ones. We've done some for private clients. But it is a, from your management right on down to developers and testers, a general purpose two-day introduction to the Gross methodology. And by the time this comes out, we will probably have the executive two-day workshop posted on the website as well. You have... Uh, the leaders in your organization from middle management all the way up to the C-level who want to understand the way the software system should work and how they can responsibly engage, we'll, we'll have that posted as well. So there will be a version or a flavor of the class for you and your team and another flavor of the class for you and your leaders. GrowsMethod.com. And so, Andy, I'm going to steal one of your plugs real quick. Andy is the author of a number of books, but a book that I think changed... Uh, the software world, uh, the pragmatic programmer from journeyman to master. It came out in '99. Joint effort between Andy and his pragmatic programmer partner Dave Thomas. That book changed programming, and so it made my de- my career as a developer uh, so much more enjoyable. I know it impacted many teams around me. The book holds up very well today. It's one that uh, anyone that that works on one of my teams, they get a copy and they have to read it. I wanted to throw that one out there and just say quick appreciation for that book. It truly did uh, change my career as a programmer. Oh, thank you. I met Andy just while he was writing that book, and he said, do you want to review it? So picture me, the young kid, right out of college. This is the first book I've ever reviewed, and it's this one. How do you not sit there and go, oh, it's great. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's terrible. So I'm, I'm trying, you know. But if you go to the front of the book, right, and look at the quotes, this is how I tell people. On the front of that quote page are a bunch of really famous people, you know, John Lakos, Kent Beck, you know, the names. Then on the back of that page is a bunch of people that are friends of Andy's. I think all of us were an RTP, <laughs> and we were the filler quotes. But I am one of the quotes in the front of, you know, I'm on page two, but I, I'm in there. <laughs> hey, that's, a, that's a claim to fame. That's a, that's a classic book. So. Ah, those were the days. Well, and, the, and funny, I, I don't want to take too much time in the post post credits here, but how that book came about, when Dave and I started, we did not intend to write a book, let alone a popular book. We started that out as a white paper for our clients. 
So it was just it was a need that we we you know, we were going out and we were trying to explain to to clients, explain to executives, explain to developers. Here's what you really should be doing. Here's how you should think about these things. And you know, like most projects, it started as a simple little white paper and and it grew. Right, scope creep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that's how that came about. It's like this was this was just a need that you know we felt you know had to be addressed. Yeah, it's it's foundational, and I and I hope that uh, if you are out there uh, working in in, ad, in an agile context or just a development context or whatever it is that you're doing that touches software, uh, read the book. Thanks for that. Uh, while we're talking about plugs, um, so since then, um, we uh, Dave and I had started the Pragmatic Bookshelf. Uh, we founded that in 2003, so that's going uh, 13 years strong now. We've published some, ooh, I'd have to count. We're somewhere between 250 and 300 titles, I think, um, that, that we've published. Um, all kinds of great stuff from you know uh, Ruby and Rails through Closure, now Elixir and Phoenix, um, a bunch of Agile books. Esther's got some some books with us. Joanna Rothman, um, lots of great stuff. And since we're doing the coupon thing, I will make a special coupon for listeners of this podcast. If you use the coupon code Agile for Humans um, with proper camel case, as one would. Um, <laughs> Uh, then you will get a, oh, let's call it a 35% discount. How's that? I guess I know where I'm shopping later today. So, <laughs> now, Andy, that's very generous and, and can't thank you enough. There's a lot of great books out there. I know um, The Nature of Software Development by Ron Jeffries is one that I recently picked up that went through you guys and yep. an excellent read. Uh, as you stated, Esther and Joanna Rothman, um, they've got some great books out there. So, 35% off with the code Agile for Humans. That's, a, that's a very nice of you, Andy. Thank you. And that's that's at pragprog.com. Uh, that's the publishing business. As Jared mentioned, our new uh, Grows initiative that Jared and I are behind is at growsmethod.com. And my personal website is at toolshed.com, uh, where you can find out where I'm speaking and, and what I'm up to. And on um, Derek Seaver's advice, I have a now page. Um, so if you go to nownownow.com, it lists everyone who has a now page on their site. And this is something you keep up to date to say, this is what I'm working on. This is what's cool. This is this is this is where I'm at. Very good. And I'm your host Ryan Ripley. Not too many plugs for me this week. I uh, just wanted to uh, remind people I'll be at Agile 2016 this year. I'm speaking about the business of Agile, better, faster, cheaper. And uh, to give away some of the 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 story, it's a myth, and we're going to talk about better words to use when you're discussing Agile. But the talk is better, faster, cheaper. And I hope to see as many of the listeners out there in Atlanta as possible. I'm really looking forward to that meetup. But other than that, just want to thank the listeners for sharing the show. We get a lot of great uh, tweets, emails, messages on the site. Uh, the download numbers are going through the roof so that I, I know that all of you are sharing the show and cannot thank you enough uh, for doing that. So again, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being here listening. Don, Jared, and Andy, thanks for this fun discussion, this refreshing discussion about experimentation, generating insights, and actually doing th something about them so that we can deliver software. It's a it's far too novel a concept, which is both good and bad, I guess. But I really appreciate that. And that's all that we have for this evening, everyone. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.